Jeremiah chapter 36, why don't you uh, make your way over there in your Bible or your uh, tablet on your phone, maybe you have parchments, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Scroll. The topic we're going to find in Jeremiah 36 this morning, King Jehoiakim takes a knife and cuts the word of God as it is read and then throws the fragments in the fire. The title of our message, Jehoiakim the Ripper. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this marvelous book and how chapter by chapter you reveal yourself to us through it. And we anticipate that today will be no less exciting, no less an adventure, Lord, as you hone in to our hearts those truths, Lord, that will uh, reveal your son to us and, and move us in the direction of becoming a little bit more like Jesus Christ for having come to this place today. And I pray that you would use each of us in the lives of others as we fellowship today, both uh, now and after our service, Lord, as we would encourage and strengthen and bless one another, pray for one another, care for one another. And that in every way, Lord, we would know that you are in this place and that we have met with you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Thomas Jefferson sat in the new presidential mansion in Washington. It was 1803 and he opened his Bible, not to study, but to cut. He scoured the text for Jesus' greatest teachings, sliced out his favorite portions, and glued them into an empty notebook. He called it the philosophy of Jesus. That book was lost to history. In 1819, he started over and created a new version called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly referred to now as the Jefferson Bible. This volume was kept largely secret and passed among Jefferson's relatives until 1895 when it was discovered by the librarian at the Smithsonian. In 1904, it was published by Congress. The Smithsonian describes Jefferson's editing process like this. Jefferson created his own gospel by taking a sharp instrument, perhaps a penknife, to existing copies of the New Testament and pasting up his own account of Christ's life and teachings. Maybe Jefferson got the idea to cut portions out of the Bible from King Jehoiakim of Judah. Jeremiah dictated a scroll which was read aloud to Jehoiakim. When every three or four columns had been read to him, the king cut it with a scribe's knife, cast it into a fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire. It's never a good idea to cut God's word. Instead, we ought to want it to cut us, spiritually speaking, cut us to the heart. It is, after all, as we read in the book of Hebrews, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There's not much danger of us literally cutting the Bible with our Kershaws and pasting together our own particular version. But we can emphasize certain things over other things and we can ignore certain things in the Bible even though they're right there. In that way, we become editors of God's word, do we not? I'll organize my thoughts around two desires. One, may it, never, may it always excuse me, be that God's word cuts you to the heart, and two, may it never be that you cut God's word from your heart. Let's take a look, first of all, at God's word cutting us to the heart in a great way. 
Now the tone of this chapter is captured in words from verse three where God said, it may be that everyone will turn from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. This lets us know that God is always reaching out to his people to either save them or to restore them. That's the God we know and serve. A God who saves, a God who restores, and who reaches out to accomplish that. And so which do you need today? Do you need saving or do you need restoring? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've never given your heart to the Lord, you're not born again, you need saving. Well, you're in the right place because Jesus is here reaching out to save you. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now he offers you the forgiveness of sins so that you can be saved for time and for eternity. A lot of Christians need to be restored or maybe just refreshed this morning. The Lord is here to do that work. That is the nature and the kind of the, the direction of our God, you might say. If he, say. he wants to save, restore, refresh. He's here to perform it in power. Now, verse one, we begin. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them and that everyone may turn from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Up till now, Jeremiah had only spoken the prophecies in the hearing of the people. Now he would commit them to parchment in order to read a wider audience. And scholars really love this section of Jeremiah because it gives a lot of insight into how the word of God was written down and preserved in those days. I was thinking about when the printing press was first invented, the very first thing ever printed was the Bible. Today we have so many means to communicate, we should use all of them to the glory of God. A lot of times we are hesitant, something new comes along, you know, some new technology or some new use of technology. I'm not saying that we don't need to be careful or thoughtful, but let's get the word out there. Let's use everything at our disposal, the internet, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is to get the word out there in front of people. Lots of testimonies of people who were arrested, as it were, by something all of a sudden that they saw. They were maybe flicking through the channels on a television set, maybe looking at the wall of a Facebook friend or something, and all of a sudden, that's the word that God used to reach them. And so just use everything that's at our disposal. Uh, whether you get into that stuff or not, we want to spread the gospel. Verse four, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch uh, wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. As I mentioned before, we typically talk about how lonely and alone Jeremiah was with no converts. But as we've gone through his book, we have seen and we will see that he had a few friends. Uh, back in chapter 26, Ahiakim was his friend. Jedaliah, uh, or Gedaliah, I guess it would be pronounced in chapter 39, who's Ahiakim's son, is close to Jeremiah. And a guy named Ebed-Melech in chapter 38 and 39. Jeremiah's closest ally, however, was his faithful secretary, Baruch, who wrote down Jeremiah's words as the prophet dictated them. 
In verse five, and Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go therefore and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from all their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn away from his evil way for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Now we don't know why Jeremiah was confined and unable to go into the temple and so it's useless to speculate. Baruch, however, must have been surprised that he would read aloud what he had just written. That that wasn't something Jeremiah had revealed to him. As far as he knew, he was just being the secretary. He wasn't the prophet. He wasn't a preacher. He was just the secretary. But all of a sudden, Jeremiah said, "Ah, you go read this. Don't be surprised when God pushes you out in a dimension like that. Uh, and it, it's never an excuse to say, well, I, I don't know enough or I'm, I'm not qualified or that's not my gift if God is calling you. It, 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 we joke around about here, uh, we joke around here about people coming with ideas for ministry because we always get big smiles on our faces and say, maybe you're the one that God's calling to do that. Oh, no, no, not me. It's something I want you to do or I thought these people could do. Or I said, it's your idea. I'm not qualified. I'm not, hey, I never thought of that. Maybe it's you that's supposed to do it. And, and we're very serious about it because a lot of times we fall into thinking, well, this is what I do and this is what I don't do. And, and sometimes we're gonna be like Baruch where God's gonna say, hey, I want you to take this to the next step. God had told Jeremiah the point of the scroll was to lead men to repentance. Jeremiah told Baruch the same thing. We need reminding that God is for us, not against us. His word convicts in order to convert. This is a great reminder to all young ministers and to ministers in general to keep the emphasis on God reaching out, on God wanting to save, on him wanting to restore, bringing us into a relationship with him. We are sinners in the hearing of an atoning God and we need to humble ourselves before him and be grateful. Verse eight, and Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now, verse eight's interesting because it jumps ahead to the result. The details of his reading are in the rest of the chapter. And so you ask yourself, why is God telling us he did it before he did it? Well, I think it's a way of emphasizing that God's calling and commanding brought his enabling. In other words, God wasn't telling Baruch to do something he would not equip him to accomplish. We can always be certain that God enables us to obey him. When I was a kid, my brothers used to like to tease me all the time. It's why I have so many emotional problems today. (laughs) But I'm sure, you know, it's just a family thing. And I remember uh, there was a time when my dad and my brothers were um, kind of the contractors on a house that my dad was building and, and um, I, I remember one situation where they showed me that the two by four wasn't two inches by four inches and then my brother told me to go find the board stretcher because we needed to 
we needed to stretch that two by four into, uh, you know, that wood into a, a true two by four. And, and you know, I, I went to where they kept the tools and, you know, I, I, I came back and I said, I can't find it, you know, or whatever and stuff. And then they laughed at me and belittled me and <laughs> I became a drug addict. But sometimes I think we look at God like that. We read something in God's word or we hear something, we think, well, I can't do that. It's like God asking me to stretch boards. It's impossible, there is no board stretcher. And what we need to believe always, because it's true, with God's calling and command is God's enabling. God would not ever ask you to get a board stretcher. I know there's some fantastic things in God's word, some amazing promises that you think, how can I do this? We need to quit asking ourselves how to do it and just believe that it's possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. Grace is an enabling force. It's an enabling sufficiency. So when I read something, I have to think, I can do this. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. God would not ask me to do anything that's impossible for me to do. Verse nine, now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiah, the king of, uh, Josiah, excuse me, the king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. There was only one mandatory day of fasting on the Jewish calendar and that was the annual day of atonement. Fasts would sometimes be announced for certain special occasions, especially when the nation was in danger. In this case, biblical historians think the occasion was the defeat of Egypt by Babylon, which made a huge change in the world political scene, and Babylon then advancing against Jerusalem. It was a crisis, and it was a good opportunity to call for a fast. Now, as we'll see, Jehoiakim is not a spiritual guy at all. It was more of a political move to try and uh, satisfy or ra- uh, you know, rally the people. But uh, they went through the motions of calling for a fast. And so verse 10, then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court of the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. This doesn't mean that they had a church service where everybody sat or stood around listening to him. He, from a vantage point up a, a level or two on the, uh, you know, in the temple area, just started reading these words as people were just milling around doing their thing. And I'm sure some people paid attention and others didn't. And so this was a public reading of the word. It'd be dissimilar to this, but it would be like you going to the mall this afternoon and in the food court just starting to read the Bible. Maybe some people would listen to you. Maybe some people wouldn't. Maybe the rent-a-cops would ask you to leave. I don't know. Uh, But that's the kind of situation here. And so Baruch, not only is he called upon to read the the Bible, uh, the word of God, but he has to do it in, in less than ideal situation. Then in verse 11, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, He went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber and there all the princes were sitting, Elishama the scribe, uh, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, El Nathan the son of Achbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah and all the princes. And when Micaiah 
who I pronounced it differently a minute ago, declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. I just make up these pronunciations, by the way. Therefore, all the princes sent Yehudi, the son of uh, Nethaniah. I dare you. I dare you to name your next son Yehudi. The return of Yehudi, it'd be great, yeah. He was the son of a a bunch of people and he said, take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Scholars debate over the exact content of this scroll, whether it was everything Jeremiah had ever said up to this point or just snippets of it. Uh, It doesn't matter. Either way, it was a lot to read in one sitting. Just as he finished reading it publicly, Baruch was invited to give another private reading to a group of nobles. It's just like God to expand your ministry. You're never quite done when it comes to spreading his word. You should expect new doors to open. And so Baruch, he went from being a secretary to being an open-air public preacher of the word of God to having a private audience with some of the key princes in Jerusalem where he was sharing God's word. And so a pretty rapid expansion of his ministry. Verse 16, now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. But they asked Baruch saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words? At his instruction, meaning Jeremiah, So Baruch answered them, he proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me and I wrote them with ink in the book. And so they first resolved that these words really were from God through Jeremiah and not just Baruch's diary, not just his recollection or opinions. We might compare them in that sense to the Bereans in the New Testament who wanted to be sure what the Apostle Paul was teaching them lined up with the inspired word of God. And so Uh, These guys are kind of the heroes in in this section of scripture because they care about the word of God and they bring it to the king uh, and they try and defend it as much as possible. Verse 19, then the princes said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, let no one know where you are. Jehoiakim was not very sympathetic to prophets. Earlier, he had sent men to extradite a prophet named Uriah who had fled to Egypt in order to execute him, which he did. The princes acted shrewdly to protect Jeremiah and Baruch. They wanted to bring the word to the king. They were hopeful that it would affect his heart, but they were shrewd enough to realize that he might just as easily turn around and order their deaths. Now, we're not told of any reaction from the general public to the reading of God's word, and in a minute, we'll see that Jehoiakim's reaction is to destroy the scroll. Again, these princes at least seem uh, to have some sense that God is speaking. Now, the question for us, though, is how is God's word affecting me? Every time I encounter the word, God wants to show me something, he wants to deal with something, he wants to teach me or reprove me or correct me or instruct me in righteousness. In the New Testament, James warns, however, that we can look into God's word and then walk away not having had an encounter with him that accomplishes any of those things. It's the famous passage where he compares God's word to a mirror. He says it would be like looking in the mirror and then walking away without doing anything about it. Now, as I look out upon you this morning, I'm sure that all of you looked in the mirror and you all look like you did something about it. (laughs) 
I challenged first service, I said, we're gonna have a mirrorless Sunday where you can get up out of bed and change your clothes, have decent clothes on, we don't have a pajama party, uh, but just come as you are with how you wake up. You don't comb your hair, you don't brush your teeth, ladies, no makeup. It would be less attended than a prayer meeting. <laughs> because that's the reason we look into the mirror. We think, wow, is that what I look like? And uh, guys, you know, same with you. I mean, you, you try not to act like you're too cool or anything like that, but I mean, you comb your hair and you shave and you do the things that make you look at least presentable. And, and so uh, we can do that to God's word and that's why it's such a good illustration. Uh, James says, here's the word of God, we read it and nothing happens. Now there are probably as many reasons why we render God's word ineffective as there would be people that's not the point either. The point is for us to return to or to remain in a state of expectation in our relationship with God. I can't say exactly how, but I can say that God wants to show how different things from his word. He wants to deal with us. He wants to teach and reprove and correct and instruct us in righteousness all the time. One I hope you'll understand this. I want to say it's a problem, but it's only a problem in one sense. But one problem we have is that normally in the West or as Americans, we approach God in the Bible from a purely academic standpoint. We think of it in terms of what we're doing right now, which is okay, kind of a lecture. We think of our devotions too sometimes as a lecture where I have God's word, I wanna understand it, I wanna memorize the, the order of the books of the Bible, I wanna know where they come and why they were written and who they were written to and the geography and all of the, you know, the limited Greek that I need to know and all that. We wanna have all of that academically accurate and we need to, that's a very important part of Bible study. But that's only the foundation so that we don't make errors as we allow God to speak to us from his word and to show us things and to deal with our hearts and to reprove and correct us and instruct us in righteousness. And sadly, I think, from the illustration in James and elsewhere, I think we sometimes have a tendency to stop with the academic understanding of God and we never break through to these other things. I've been quoting a little from 2 Timothy 3.16 which reads, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And so as a spiritual exercise, here's something we could do. Take at least one of those things and ask ourselves, what is the Lord saying to me today? What doctrine am I seeing more clearly? How am I being reproved or corrected? What is God suggesting so that I am pursuing a more righteous lifestyle? If God's word instructs me in righteousness, that means he must be showing me how I can live more righteously in this sinful and perverse generation. And so all of these things are the potential ways that God wants to speak with me. And since the word is alive and cutting to our hearts to do those things, I need to always expect them to be happening. I want to feel disappointed if I can leave a Bible study and not hear God speaking to me from it. And it's not God's fault ever because his word is alive and powerful, and so I need to bring my whole faculty to bear on it and say, Lord, I want to have ears to hear what you're telling me. And not, you know, uh, 
a lot of people think, oh yeah, I'm gonna be rebuked, I'm gonna be reproved, I'm gonna be beat down again. No, the Lord is busy trying to make you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, the greatest man that ever lived. That's what he's trying to do. If he has to correct you and reprove you, he will, but he's instructing you in righteousness so that you and I will be little Christs out in the world, that we will be like Christ, which is what it means to be a Christian, so that our world will be affected. Now let's move on, verses 20 through 32. May it never be that you cut God's word from your heart. Jehoiakim, excuse me, not a good guy. Verse 20, they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Yehudi to bring the scroll and he took it from Elishama the scribe's chamber and Yehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Yehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. God's word exposed Jehoiakim as someone who put himself above the word of God, aloof from it. The symbolism obviously is, obviously is clear. Cut the word, burn it. This has nothing to do with me holding Jeremiah and the word of God in contempt. Verse 24, yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king or any of his servants who heard all these words. The fear of the Lord as evidenced by the tearing of their outward garments ought to have been their reaction. Instead, they all heard the word with contempt or most of them as we'll see. I was thinking this morning that probably if you were a Jew, the greatest invention of the modern age is Velcro. Because Jews are always tearing their clothes in the Old Testament. Every other chapter in the Old Testament, they hear something and they tear their clothes. How, what kind of a wardrobe do you need to have to where you're always tearing your outer garment? If you had Velcro, man, that'd be awesome. Then you just put it back together. But anyway... That's not what the Lord is speaking to me, but it is something I was, that's, that's one of those things where as a Berean, you'll go and say, yeah, I don't see that. Uh, now, have you ever thought, wow, that's just what my friend or family member needed to hear for sure they're gonna get saved today? Maybe you brought somebody on Christmas or Christmas Eve or you will on Easter or to some other special event or to a concert or something like that and you're thinking, this is perfect. You hear Greg Laurie share the gospel and you wanna get saved again. You think, man, this is powerful. This is, this is God piercing the heart. And you look over at your friend and they're playing words with friends. <laughs> Angry birds. They're not paying any attention at all. It means nothing to them. Uh, and then you watch them walk away seemingly unaffected. That is kind of a mini Jeremiah moment for you where you, you see the, the potential but you also see the disappointment. You know, we're fond of saying that God's word does not return void. Often it seems like it does, but it never does. The sad thing is it sometimes exposes the hardness of a heart and that is an effective work as well, showing someone how hard their heart is. Uh, verse 25, nevertheless, El Nathan, Deliah, and Gemariah uh, implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. This is bold on the part of these guys given the demeanor of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is a prophet killer and so kudos to them for taking a stand. God's word was working on hearts and it emboldened these guys uh, and, and it's, it's a pretty big deal. 
Uh, verse 26, and the king commanded Jer- Jeremiel, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Sh- uh, Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord had hid them. Century after century, the devil encourages wicked men and women to kill the messengers of God. It never stops the word from spreading. In fact, it usually multiplies it, but there's only so much you can do. There's no way to stop the spread of the word of God, but the devil has to try, give him props for trying, and he keeps killing people, and all it does is make it worse for him. Now, in our cases, at least in this country, no one is really trying to kill you, not yet anyway. They will try to stop you some other way, usually by finding fault, either real or imagined, with your testimony for Jesus. Even if there is fault, it doesn't nullify the truth of God's word. Keep giving it out. If you fail, ask for and receive God's forgiveness. Sometimes the most powerful testimony you can give is to show how God restores his fallen saints. We never sin so that grace may abound, but when we sin, grace does abound. And there are people who need to know that because they're understanding of God is that he doesn't ever really give any second chances or third chances or any chances beyond the the first one. And um, not that we sin that grace might abound, but uh, people need to see that Jesus loves, accepts, and forgives them right where they're at. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and besides there were Uh, added to them many similar words. And so they rewrote the scroll and even added to it, including prophecies that were unique to Jehoiakim. Now, people have been editing God's word ever since Eve misquoted the Lord in the Garden of Eden and the devil gave his own interpretation of it. The easy target today, and it's true, is the person we would label a religious liberal who cuts from the Bible events like miracles and teachings like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is watch educational TV for five seconds in a Bible special and you'll see these experts who clearly don't believe that Jesus was the sinless son of God who rose from the dead, that his miracles are fabrications, uh, those kinds of things. And so that, that's easy, they're an easy target. So are the cults who add to or subtract from the Bible. The real question for us is this, do we ever edit God's word? And the truth is Christians sometimes do edit God's word in their own lives. I'm hesitant to give examples, although I must, because I don't want to single out any one thing in particular, uh, because if I'm not doing that, 
then I feel I'm okay and I, I may not think about what I am doing. But I, I think you'll see and understand when we're done through the Holy Spirit, we all have a tendency to ignore certain things that are in the Bible or think of them as less important. Let's take a very easy one to start, one that doesn't affect any of you since you're actually here. A lot of professing Christians are simply not involved in regular fellowship at a local congregation. Now, there are specific verses that command them to be in fellowship. The whole tone of the New Testament assumes you will participate in a local church, and all of the illustrations of what the church is presume you are part of something greater, like stones in a building or the members of a physical body. Yet certain people insist it's just not necessary for them to be involved in church. It doesn't matter what their excuse or reason is, the, the situation is simple. The Bible says you need to be involved in a local fellowship and they say, no, we don't. And we would say, from today's illustration, they have taken out their knife and cut out huge portions of the New Testament and the word of God to fit their own situation. They have edited God's word. Another example would be giving. Now I'm using it not as a solicitation for funds. We're not gonna take a second offering. But... It's universal in its scope and because there's solid quantifiable research about the giving habits of Christians in America. The New Testament encourages believers to invest in the kingdom of God by giving of their earnings to the work of the church. Giving is to be regular and cheerful, generous and sacrificial. We're not all gonna argue about the tithe or what the percentage is, but Paul makes it clear and there's other passages that make it clear that you should give, it should be regular, it should be cheerful, it should be generous, it should be sacrificial and that just isn't happening, not in America anyway. According to a study called Passing the Plate, and I quote, more than one out of four American Protestants give away no money at all, not even $5 a year. 36% of evangelicals report that they give away less than 2% of their income, only about 27% tithe. So let's just think about the 27%, more than one out of four, who give nothing to the work of the Lord, they are cutting away from the word of God huge portions of the Bible, not just a verse here or there about giving, but they are cutting away from the Bible an entire philosophy that God is generous. For God so loved the world that he did what? He withheld his only begotten son. No, he gave his only begotten son. If God is anything, he is generous to a fault. And when you, when you can come as a Christian and say, I never, ever have to give anything to God, you have eliminated huge portions of the word of God. There's very, you can hardly find anything to read in the Bible. And yet, fully 27% of Christians give nothing to the work of the Lord. And so this editing thing, it's not just Jehoiakim, a contemptible king with his knife, cutting out the word of God. It can affect us as Christians. And then we would extrapolate that to say that anything I know I ought to do or practice, anything God's shown me in the word, but I choose to overlook for any reason, I have edited God's word. I don't need a scribe's knife to cut away the passage. I've already done it. If you went to college, you probably remember, in fact, you were in love with Cliff's Notes. Remember, you know what I'm talking about, Cliff's Notes? 
They take huge, uh, it's a study guide that takes these huge works of literature and condenses them into bite-sized portions so that I don't have to read the book. And I tell you, you know, I love to study. I enjoyed college. I like literature. But there was one, one time I really enjoyed Cliff's Notes. I was in an English lit class, and they wanted us to read The Golden Bowl by Henry James. I don't know if any of you have ever encountered that book. It's maybe seven million pages long. <laughs> Seems like it. If you downloaded it to your Kindle, it would blow up your Kindle. I mean, it's just, it is verbose. It's, it, the paperback version is that thick. And it's awful, as far as I'm concerned, the whole story. It, I, but, and, and so Cliff's notes, you know, I could have that thing worked out in about 15 minutes. I knew the whole story and the main characters and everything I needed to know about the golden bowl uh, I had learned. And now, the criticism of Cliff's notes, of course, is that for students, you don't get exposed to the original uh, intent, and that is a valid criticism. Now, forget college and, and all. Now, think of it today. You like to read. A lot, everybody likes to read, and you have special things that you like to read. You like certain genres of literature, and you have certain authors you like, and you don't want Cliff's Notes version. You want the full, unadulterated, unedited. You want everything that that guy's written because you like the way he writes, and you want the full experience of that. Maybe movies are your thing. You can't wait to get to the director's cut or to the extended scenes or the the deleted scenes. You want to know everything that you can about the fullness of that project. If we're not careful, we settle for a kind of Cliff Notes version of Christianity where I come and I, I figure out what are, what are the five or four or 12 minimum things that I need to know, and, and, and this other stuff, it, it's not that important. I mean, after all, I'm saved, and I'm doing these things that I kind of want to do, and, and, all, and I end up being a Cliff's Notes Christian. Now, obviously, if you've got a book you want to read and there's the Cliff Notes version and then there's the Lord of the Rings next, you're going to take the whole thing and go for it because you want everything. We don't want to be Cliff's Notes Christians and so we need to quit editing God's word because we need to be full and rich and filled and overflowing. And I think one of the reasons I and all of us don't have the effect on the world that we would like to have all the time is because we have edited certain parts of the word to fit our own situation. And so we're just not giving off everything that God wants to give off. And the Lord, he loves us, he cares for us. He's trying to make us into the image of Jesus Christ. But that's never gonna happen if we edit. And so we need to defer to the Lord. Quit editing, let him do the building in our lives. Embrace the fullness of God's work through his word as he tries to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ.